0: The following is a presentation of the Church of the Living God in Traverse City, Michigan. The more I'm looking at it, the more I'm realizing Jude is like every other place in the Bible. There's just a lot to draw from it. So, one thing I'll note uh, there are notes that get published to go with this sermon, and there's a link once again in the post for this live feed, but it's also on the church website. I have a lot of footnotes to the stuff I'm saying today. I think this will probably be the case as this series goes on. There's just fascinating and I think insightful. Realities about the context in which this was written that can really open up the depth of what Scripture is saying and I think it adds a lot to the discussion. I'm not always sure how to work all of those things into a sermon uh, because sermons is a little different than a class, which is a little different from a theological book about something. So I would just encourage you, check out the footnotes. Um, what I am learning as I study about Jude, I'm standing on the shoulders of giants who have been studying this for 2,000 years, so I would like to point you in their direction. So let's do a little background first. So the writer of Jude is, wait for it, Jude. Or Judas was maybe his name, but because uh, there was a little bit of baggage associated with the name Judas at that time, that might have been a reason that Jude was... Uh, preferred in this case, but Judas, or Jude, was the half-brother of James and of Jesus. Uh, It's interesting, in his introduction, and we're going to read the whole book here in a second, we don't often get to read a whole book of the Bible in a church service, but we will today. He doesn't introduce himself as the brother of James or the brother of Jesus, which would have given him real street cred, like that's kind of a pat on the back. He introduces himself as the servant or the slave of Jesus, his half-brother, which tells you something about how Judas, or Judas, I'm going to say that, I'll say Jude, how Jude viewed Jesus. I mean, I'm trying to imagine my boys, one of them referring to the other one as someone to whom he is a slave. I don't think that's going to happen. Uh, But Jude saw what happened with the risen Savior, and he recognized that this half-brother of his with whom he had grown up and he was family, this was the Messiah. So this is the person writing this book. And he tells us right up front that he was going to write about salvation. Apparently, I don't know if he was going to rewrite Romans or what the deal was, but he wanted to talk about salvation, but he says, I can't. There's something going on in your church. There's something going on where you are. I have to talk with you about, and I have to talk with you about defending the faith against false teachers who have crept into your midst. Now, there is some disagreement or some discussion about who these false teachers were, but they were likely the Gnostics. And I'm going to tell you right now more than you ever wanted to know about Gnosticism. But I think it's helpful to know what was forming the opinion of the Gnostics uh, that they were then bringing into the church. And then you'll see there's some things that Jude writes that are very pointed and very specific about some of those elements. So uh, stick with me here for a brief overview of what Gnosticism was about. According to some Gnostic myths... In the beginning, there existed one true and omnipotent God composed only of spirit. This God continues to exist, but is so superior to humanity as to be incomprehensible. This divine spirit reproduced, forming other divine but lesser spirits in the form of couples that are sometimes called aeons. Some of these couples then mated and created a divine realm with each generation increasingly separated from the true God and thus less perfect. So here's God, he recreates, um, and then there's these couples who are just continuing to recreate and they keep getting one step further and further and further from God. According to one anonymous treatise, an aeon whom the Gnostics called Sophia, which is Greek for wisdom, or pistos, which is Greek for faith. And we're actually going to see that word come up in the book of Jude. So these aeons with these names, they wished to create a work alone without her consort. And her work became an image of heaven, so that a curtain exists between the heavenly and the lower regions. A shadow came into being, and this shadow became matter. So the Gnostics thought the physical world was really far away removed from God and in fact because of the way it came into being is the physical world is not a good place. Other misrecount that Sophia exceeded her bounds by attempting to comprehend the entire divine realm. And as a result, she fell from the divine place and became terrified, angry, and upset. And these emotions personified themselves. And these illegitimate offspring of Sophia bring about the creation of the world. So the physical world is created through by terrified, angry, and upset, personified emotions from a fallen kind of rebellious being That's what brings the world into existence. These malformed beings, partly divine, but by their illegitimacy severed from the divine family tree, fearing that Sophia would first recover her strength and return to the divine realm, divided her into innumerable pieces and imprisoned her in matter where she remains as the divine spark within the human bodies of Gnostics yearning to return to her heavenly home. By the way, if you studied Scientology, this sounds a lot like Scientology at this point. Humans without this divine spark are, like animals, just another part of creation and thus destined for ultimate destruction. But within the Gnostics dwell the sparks of the divine that can be liberated from the material world if one acquires the gnosis or the knowledge, which is where they get their name, necessary for salvation. Okay. Thus concludes, more than you ever wanted to know about Gnosticism. So Gnosticism didn't start in the church. It didn't originate there. But when it gets there, uh, this would be no surprise then that the Gnostics couldn't imagine that God would become physical. Because this physical world was just such a problem. So they thought Jesus was either one of the divine offspring of Sophia, one of these aeons who deliver this gnosis to redeem humanity, or that Jesus was a flesh and blood person, but was temporarily inhabited by this divine spirit. Now, in order to support this, they would distort and they would twist the Gospels. They would isolate words. They would isolate phrases. They would take stories and make them mean something they clearly weren't intended to mean. But by doing that, they can make Jesus fit this paradigm. Um, it's worth noting Something that Iranius said, they could profess the same creeds and say the same prayers while inwardly understanding the words to have a deeper meaning that the Christians rejected. And so Iranius this was about 130 AD, could declare that, quote, "Such persons are to outward appearance sheep, for they appear to be like us. But what they say in public, repeating the same words as we do, but inwardly they are like wolves." Now, I don't know if you'll be able to see this on my slide. Can you just go to the next slide real quick, Caitlin? Um, I'm trying to capture that image up here on the right side of the screen where I've got a sheep with a wolf. I don't know if it's going to show up with the video or not, but this idea that uh, they present themselves as sheep, but inside they are wolves. So this is going to present a problem to the presentation of the gospel message. And in fact, um, yeah, we can just leave that up there for now, Caitlin. We're ahead of notes, but we're good. So in addition to this problem about understanding who Jesus was, because the Gnostics had such a sharp divide between the physical world and the spiritual world, they have kind of concluded you can do whatever you want to with your skin. Your skin and your soul aren't connected. Your skin is bad. Do what you want with it. It doesn't matter. All that matters is what you think or feel inside your soul or your spirit. So they just didn't care what you did with your body. Now, some of them ended up becoming ascetics. They just denied themselves all pleasure. They were very self-disciplined. But others were described at that time by some as sexually immoral gluttons. My guess is they covered the spectrum from very self-controlled to just very out of control. But the bottom line was it didn't matter what you did with your bodies. Your your bodies were already fallen. They were going to be discarded. They were inconsequential. So this is what Jude is confronting. He is making the argument that Gnostics are not, in fact, bringing you knowledge about Christ that will lead you to redemption or salvation. And in addition, they're leading people away from God. And one of the outworkings of this is the way in which they're living, what they're doing with their bodies is becoming seriously problematic. And as he's going going to go on to say in his book, there will be a reckoning. You can't just do this kind of thing without consequence. So to make his point, Jude's going to appeal to an interesting range of things. He's going to appeal to the Old Testament. He's going to appeal to the teaching of the apostles. And then he's going to refer to some writings that heavily influenced the first century, well, actually probably even longer than that, but for sure the Jewish community at that time. Uh, Jude and Second Peter are similar in this fashion. Both of them refer to First Enoch and the Assumption of Moses. These are what we might call deuterocanonical books. Uh, There's some different phrases for them. You don't find them in the Bible that we bring to church on a Sunday morning, Um, at least not in a Protestant Bible. But these were works that were hugely influential and were taken very seriously. They were never considered to be inspired at the level that scriptures were, but they were considered to be worth taking seriously. So Jude is going to quote them several times. So he's going to make reference to things you're not going to find anywhere else in the Bible. So I just want to note this. It doesn't apply that those other books are inspired like the Bible is. Uh, For that matter, you see Paul on the Acropolis quoting heathen poets. He knows his audience. He's making a connection. He's trying to make a point that they'll understand. It didn't imply that the heathen poets were inspired. What it meant was they had said some things that actually worked in this particular case to make the point Paul was trying to make. So I would, I think I would phrase it this way, that Jude quotes these writers because he's inspired to quote them to make an inspired point. Um, So, he's citing stories that the audience is familiar with. He's basically saying, you know these stories? You know how these stories end? This is where we're going with what we're talking about in this letter. Final thing to note before we do a read-through of Jude. Jude likes groups of three. He likes them a lot. This is very exciting for pastors who need a three-point sermon. Uh, I will just say this, and if you pick up notes, I've got some more information. It doesn't necessarily mean, as he'll mention these things in groups of three, that that's all that is to be said on the matter. It's probably just a literary technique. Jude seems to be a very accomplished and polished writer. He likes an orderly presentation of things, uh, but it... If you look at how other places of scripture use list, it's probably meant to be a typical list. It's going to tell you in general things to look out for, and I suspect among the early church, it sparked conversation about, okay, I wonder what else could characterize these false teachers. And as we go through this book, that's kind of the approach we'll be taking as well. All right, let's read through it, and then I'm really only going to look at the first two verses this morning. Um, so here we go. Jude, a slave of Jesus the anointed and a brother of James to you. Ah, he did say he was a brother of James. Uh, I said at the beginning he didn't. I take that back. To the ones who have been called, whom God the Father loves, and whom Jesus the anointed one has kept, may kindness, or perhaps mercy, depending what translation you're using, may kindness, peace, and love be yours in abundance. Friends, I've been trying to write you about our common salvation, but these days my heart is troubled and I'm compelled to write to you and encourage you to continue struggling for the faith that was entrusted to the saints once and for all. That's the common salvation, the faith that was entrusted to the saints once and for all. Vile men have slithered in among us. Depraved souls who stand condemned have made a mockery of the grace given to us, using it as a pretext for a life of excess, lived without any thought of God. These poor fools have denied Jesus the Anointed, our one Lord and Master. You have heard the stories many times, and the Spirit has enlightened you about their meaning, but you still need to be reminded. Remember when the Lord saved our ancestors from the land in Egypt. He breathed life into their earthen lungs and took back the life from those who did not believe. And God has kept the rebellious heavenly messengers bound and chained in utter darkness, shadowy gloom, until the time when his judgment arrives, because they failed to keep their rightful positions and abandon their appointed realms." sodom and gomorrah and all their neighbors were defeated by their own sexual perversions as they pursued the strange and unnatural impulses of the flesh uh, note the broadside here against gnostic ideals god controls life in the physical world he gives life and takes away life uh, those who fall from heaven are undergoing judgment they're not sparking something divine within us what you do with your body matters in fact it says here your bodily choices can defeat you Right out of the gates, he's going after these these perversions of Christian truth that were sneaking into the church. Let those who went their own way, and this is the overarching problem in the book of Jude. Let those who went their own way and are experiencing the eternal heat of God's vengeance, a punishment by fire, be a warning to you. These stories are examples to help you understand the fate of those dreamers who have slipped in and done three things, defiled your community, rejected those in charge, and insulted the glorious majesty of the heavenly messengers. Even their chief, Michael, when disputing with the devil over Moses' body, did not offer his own taunting judgment against him. Michael simply said, may the Lord's rebuke fall on you. The deceivers among you, despise what they do not understand, live without reason like animals. Uh, Ouch, the Gnostics claimed you had to have this divine spark or you were just an animal. Here he's pointing out they're actually the ones living like animals. And their ways are corrupting them. Woe to these deceivers. They're doomed. They have followed in the footsteps of their father Cain, sold their souls for profit into Balaam's deceit, and suffered the devastation of Korah's rebellion. Oh, I could promise you were coming back to followed, sold, suffered. That's just a ready-made sermon. These men are, and now you're going to get two groups of three because Jude is just going crazy here, hidden reefs in your love feasts as they glut themselves without fear, shepherds who only feed themselves, Waterless clouds carried away by the wind. Autumn's lonely and barren trees, twice dead and uprooted. Violent waves of the sea breaking over the bow, foaming with shame. Lost and wandering stars destined to live forever in gloomy darkness. During the seventh generation after Adam, the prophet Enoch said, Look, the Lord came, and with him tens of thousands of his holy messengers to judge wicked men and convict the impious and ungodly, impious, impious, and ungodly for all they have said and all the hard things they have done against the Holy One. These men were complainers who look long and hard to find the faults of other men. They are led by their own lustful desires like fools down the path of destruction. They are arrogant liars who want only to get ahead of others." But you, friends, remember the words of the emissaries of our Lord Jesus, the anointed, the liberating king. At the end of time, some will ridicule the faithful and follow their lust to the grave. These are the men among you, those who divide friends, those concerned ultimately with this world, those without the spirit, You, however, should stand firm in the love of God, constructing a life from within the holy faith. There's that pistis word, faith. So once again, I feel like that's a purposeful word. It's making a point to the Gnostics. Constructing a life within the holy faith, praying the Spirit's prayer, waiting eagerly for the mercy of our Lord Jesus, the anointed, which leads to eternal life. Keep being kind to those who waver in the faith. Pursue those who are singed by the flames of God's wrath and bring them safely to him. Show mercy to to others with fear, despising every garment soiled by the weakness of human flesh. Now to the one who can keep you. By the way, verse 1 talked about those who were called, loved, and kept. Now we're bookending it. Now to the one who can keep you upright and plant you firmly in his presence, clean, unmarked, and joyful in the light of his glory to the one and only God, our Savior, through Jesus, the anointed, our Lord, be glory and greatness and might and authority, just as it has been since before he created time, which also would mean before he created the universe, the physical world. May it continue now and into eternity. Amen. All right, that is chapter one and the entire book of Jude. I briefly want to Just wrap up this morning by talking about the introduction. Jude, a slave of Jesus the anointed and a brother of James. To you, the ones who have been called, whom God the Father loves, and whom Jesus the anointed one has kept, mercy, peace, and love. May they never stop blooming in you and from you. Okay, so called is simply summoned, beckoned. It's an invitation. It's what God sends to the world so that they can receive salvation. Loved is agape. We've talked about agape, love, a lot. It's the self-sacrificial love that God has for us as embodied in the person of Christ and his sacrifice on the cross. And then kept is simply a Greek word for preserved or to stand guard over. You see this in what's called Jesus' high priestly prayer from John 17, 11. Jesus prayed, Father, keep or preserve through your name those whom you have given me that they may be one as we are. It reminds me of this, the verses we read in our prayer as we started this morning. Who can separate us? Who can come between us and the love of God's anointed? Could troubles, hardships, persecution, hunger, poverty, danger, even death? The answer is nothing. Nothing. As the psalm says, on your behalf, our lives are in danger constantly. We're like sheep awaiting slaughter. But no matter what comes, we will always taste victory through him who loved us. That we had kept here at the start or loved. For I have every confidence that nothing, not death, life, heavenly messengers, dark spirits, the present, the future, spiritual powers, height, debt, no created thing. Can come between us and the love God revealed in the anointed one, Jesus our Lord. We're called, we're loved, we're kept. Uh, I'm going to try two quick analogies uh, for this uh, because the Bible uses two analogies to describe our relationship with Him. One is a marriage analogy the church is the bride of Christ. The second is the adoption analogy. We are adopted into the family of Christ. Now, listen, these are analogies that aren't going to be perfect. I promise they're not going to be perfect. But I've been trying to wrap my mind around how we experience in our lives the importance of called, loved, and kept. So two situations come to mind. So when I began dating my wife, I called her. Hey, baby. I, sometimes literally on the phone, but like, I, call, I called her. And it was inept and it was awkward, but it was clear, I want you. So I called to her, Marco, Polo, it was, (sighs) focus. Okay, so I called to her and she responded, awesome. Here we are almost 30 years later. Okay, so that's the call part. Then there's the loved part. So let's be clear about something. God's love is perfect. Mine is not. It's something I've been committed to learning for almost 30 years now. But this idea of being loved is, as you might expect, deeply important to my wife. If I had called her, hey, baby, Polo, and she had come to me, and now we're married, but then I just didn't love her, well, that's a huge problem. Because part of what the ideal is in marriage in this covenant is that you then keep, right? You call, and then you keep. But if there's not love there, it's going to be a problem. Love is this necessary bridge connecting calling and keeping. My wife needs to know that I love her. And by that, I mean I am committed to keeping well, the one whom I called. And we talked last week, I think it was just last week, about how Peter says to Jesus, you know I love you. Like, I mean, it, it is hard to love well on a human level. So once again, this analogy is a human level analogy. Um, what God loves is he does it perfectly. But you, do you see these three parts? Uh, I called. She said, yes. I plan to keep. But I have to have that love in the middle, called, kept, preserved. And now, if my wife experiences all three of these things, that's a good experience, right? That's a good exp- That's. A, that's a, she's sitting right there behind the camera. That's a good experience. And, and that preservation, part of this is I will fight for you. Um, you are mine now, and I'm hers, just to be clear. Uh, but I will fight for you. I will protect you. I will look out for you. right, so called, loved, kept. If this all works well, it's a good scenario. If you've adopted a child, which once again is language the Bible uses about God adopting us into his family, I think you see this principle here as well. You called them. Right, now you're keeping them, and the necessary bridge uniting this is love. Especially if a child who was adopted is old enough to understand what it meant to be unhomed, or to feel unloved, or to not have a family. This is huge. Someone wanted me. Someone's going to keep me. This is new and amazing territory, but it has to have love. First Corinthians 13 makes this clear. It's true for every area of life, but especially here. If you're going to call someone and you're going to keep someone, you better love them. Otherwise, that calling and keeping is going to be miserable. But this is what Jude is stressing. God calls us. God, in essence, says, I want you. I want you. He calls us in the midst of our sinfulness and our brokenness and our undeservedness. Um, a couple years ago, I think I used analogy back when I think American Idol was the only gig on TV or I don't know what the one is where you your seats are turned around and you hit a button and you, you turn around and you're like, yay, I want you. What is, what's that called? The voice. Um, I love this idea that God's not waiting for one of us to have a beautiful voice before he hits the button and turns around and goes, I want you. Like the minute that first horrible croaking sound comes out of our mouth, he punches the button, he turns around, I want you. Not because of who we are, but because of what he can make of us and because he loves us. Right? So this is the calling aspect of it. God says, I want you. Then he loves us enough to die for us. Enough to literally die for us. We know we have the love part. And then he says, I will keep you. I will guard. I will preserve. I will defend. So God calls, and he loves, and he keeps. This is why I think the next verse says, the kindness or mercy... Peace and love will be multiplied to you. It is not in this verse that these things will flow out of you to others. I think that will happen. This verse, though, is very specific. Judas stressing that you will experience this when you surrender your life to Christ. When we respond to that call, what we're going to experience now is the mercy, peace, and love of Christ. So here we are in Christ. We're called by the mercy of God, who through Jesus pardons the guilty. And I think the more we understand this, the more we are moved by his mercy. We're kept or preserved in the peace of God as his spirit fills us and unites us with God and others. Um, In Judaism, this is the word shalom, right? The New Testament's not written in Hebrew, so they use a different word. But the idea is the same. This is peace with God, peace with others, peace within ourselves, and then peace with God's created order as well. We are kept and preserved in the peace of God, and then we are beloved in the love of a perfect father who so loved the world that he gave his son. And it's not because we earn it or deserve it, but because God gives it. So this is what Jude is warning his audience. He says, listen, in fact, that little bit, the called kept uh, and preserved, or called, kept, sorry, and loved, might be just a brief distillation of the salvation he wanted to talk about originally. But he has to warn them that there are false teachers who have moved in who are leading you away from this. They're undermining this message. They're distorting this message. They are taking you away from the gospel. It says you've got to contend for the faith, not against the world outside. I mean, other authors will talk about that. But Jude says there's contention for your faith within your church to be sure nobody leads you away from this reality called preserved beloved. This has been a presentation of the Church of the Living God. For more information, please visit us at clgonline.org.